Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with Dr. Susanna Greer. What's up, Susanna? Hey, Joe, Joe, Joe. It's a great it's, day in Atlanta. It's a great day. We just had a great conversation. It's so fun to talk to these people because, you know, these scientists, they're not just doing great work, but you get to talking to them and you realize how motivated they are, not just to do great science, but these folks are working with cancer patients and their families and caregivers, vulnerable populations, and you can really just hear the good in their voice. And I just feel so much better after after um, each one of these, especially today. We spoke with three great scientists at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Uh, Dr. Elise Park is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's director of the Health Promotion and Resiliency Research Program at Mass General. Um, she's associate director of survivorship research and psychosocial services for the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center Survivorship Program. Travis Baggett, Dr. Travis Baggett, is associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, director of research at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program and a Massachusetts General Hospital research scholar. And Dr. Sonia Persach Lima is Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's a primary care physician at the Mass General Chelsea Community Healthcare Center, and she's physician leader for cancer outreach at MGH Cancer Center. So Susanna, do you hear what I'm saying about how these brilliant scientists didn't just dedicate their careers to science, it's to helping people. And I know that maybe that's obvious, but it really came out in their voices today. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the the biggest takeaway that I had that that tied all of these really fabulous researchers together is that they're all focused on different vulnerable populations when it comes to cancer. So Elise is going to share just this super cool study that she's been involved in around improving quality of life for folks that are at risk for cancer and how she has all these amazing interventions to help us both prevent us ever having cancer and then engage with us if we do have cancer and then continue to engage with us post-treatment. And it's all around lung cancer and screening and smoking cessation. I mean, just some really fantastic programs and interventions. And I just I just loved it. I love the parts where she talks about increasing our resilience, decreasing our stress and staying with us. And I just is ah, it so impressive. Um, I loved it. I loved everything about that conversation. And then Sonia brings in a different kind of vulnerable population. So Sonia works and has worked for the past 20 years with a, a group of of patients, and I think primarily refugees, but vulnerable populations who were in need of just kind of understanding the healthcare system. So new people to healthcare who need to be navigated and need to be brought into healthcare and help to understand um, opportunities that they have for screening and breast and colorectal and lung cancer. And so she works with a group of individuals called patient navigators who do just that. And oh my gosh, she has these amazing statistics to share around the impact that patient navigation can have with vulnerable populations. So I won't I won't spoil here, but good grief, I mean, just fantastic data. And then Travis also works with a different group of vulnerable patients. And I just love his message. So Travis works with 
homeless patients. And this is a patient population that, oh, he just, he shared language with us around the new recognition and why we should be concerned with health equity in this vulnerable population and all the fantastic work that he and his colleagues are doing to screen homeless populations for cancers, especially for lung cancer and the work that he is doing around smoking cessation and um, just how pressing it is to address cancer in the homeless population. So again, this thread, you were right, of their concern for addressing cancer in vulnerable population, for being with us, no matter who the us is, no matter who that population is, being with us through our cancer journey and staying with us. You hear in their voices this love and concern for cancer patients, and um, ah, my heart was just so full to talk to them and to know they're a part of the American Cancer Society family. So I think you guys are going to just love, love hearing from them today. Well, good morning. I am so excited to talk to all of you today. So Elise, Sonia, Travis, if you're ready, we'll get started. Great. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. All right. So we have some wonderful researchers joining us from Mass General and Harvard Medical School. Elise, I'd love to start with you. Can you help us to understand what's the big picture problem that your research is trying to solve? Thank you so much, Susanna. So the big picture is a big umbrella. Really, my research for the past uh, couple decades is focused on uh, improving the quality of life and health behaviors of folks who are at risk for cancer. Um, improving uh, this during cancer treatment, and then helping individuals with um, these issues after they're completed with cancer treatment. So currently the work we're focused on is helping individuals quit smoking as they are undergoing lung cancer screening. We're really trying to increase the number of patients who are undergoing lung cancer screening and help those who are currently smoking quit smoke. Uh, quit during this time. Fortunately, the U.S. Preventive um, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force just expanded the criteria of people who can get lung cancer screening. So we're hoping more Americans will take advantage of this and protect their health. Um, the second issue is helping people stay quit following cancer treatment, and the third one is helping people cope with issues after cancer treatment, trying to provide better access to healthcare insurance and to needed healthcare to prevent um, cancers from occurring, and also helping them deal with stress and enhance the resiliency post-treatment. The nice thread about all these things is this work is all continuing to be developed and executed virtually. So we're just continuing in our big picture work to reach as many folks as we can and help them with these health behaviors and quality of life issues. Oh wow, Elise, this is this is going to be so fun to hear about. I I love the word that you you shared in the very beginning. You you said that this is an umbrella, and there there is no better description. I mean, everything that you described is that you're really impacting cancer patients along this continuing journey that we we think of that we're all on in our cancer journey, right? You're impacting folks that they're the risk for cancer, if they are undergoing treatments, during treatment, after treatment, 
and in so many different ways that smoking can impact each of those areas, right? So quitting smoking during treatment, um, post-treatment, and you know, helping them after their, their treatment regimen to maintain that um, you know, smoking cessation. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to talk to you about what you're doing to help folks deal with stress and to increase their resiliency. And gracious, we've learned so much during the pandemic about how to reach people virtually. So, okay, fine. This will be a great conversation. Thank you, Elise. All right, Sonia, same question. Help us understand what is the big picture problem that your area of research is trying to solve? So uh, I'm a primary care physician and uh, Chelsea Health Center and that is affiliated with Mesh General and I've been there for almost 20 years and uh, immediately when I got there I realized that there are incredible disparities in care, particularly in cancer care, uh, cancer screening. Uh, so our Latino patients, our refugees, uh, they didn't get, they didn't even know, like, for example, uh, refugees for uh, that they can have actually breast cancer screening or uh, our uh, Latino patients had the lowest screening rates in colorectal cancer screening. So I uh, started working on that and I'm still working on decreasing disparities in care for vulnerable populations, particularly in uh, cancer screening. I started with the colorectal cancer, did a lot of breast, uh, and then uh, American Cancer Society actually funded me to do a lung cancer screening patient navigation. So what uh, we do, we actually, uh, uh, hire or train uh, patient navigators that are similar, like how patients, and they help them understand why they need screening and then navigate them to get that screening done. Oh my goodness. Okay. Wow. What another area that so many of us have learned so much about in this last year and years, I would say, is issues surrounding refugees and other vulnerable populations have become, I think, covered, I would say, and we can talk about this later, maybe better in the media and have been highlighted more. And I'll be so interested to understand how you have seen changes in these populations. It sounds like you've been engaged in this area since around maybe 2000 or 2001 and, and in cancers where we struggle as a general population for screening, right? You, you mentioned lung and colorectal and breast where the screening rates aren't good, period, in some of these cancers. I'm thinking particularly of lung and I can only imagine what it's like for a refugee. So I can't wait to hear the struggles that you've had and the impact and learn more about your patient navigation program. So. Thank you, Sonia. This is going to be really wonderful. All right. Travis, same question. Tell me about the big picture problem that your research is trying to solve. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the pod. Uh, this is a real honor and a pleasure. Uh, several years back, we did a large study funded by the American Cancer Society of more than 28,000 people who used clinical services at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. And we found that 
our patients got lung cancer and died of lung cancer at more than double the rate that was seen in the Massachusetts general population those same years. Now, we know that there are two basic ways to reduce lung cancer deaths in any population. One is to diagnose lung cancer early or earlier through lung cancer screening. And the second is to quit smoking if you do smoke in order to prevent lung cancer in the first place. And as we did a little bit of digging, we found that internal data at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program suggested that very few of our patients who were probably eligible for lung cancer screening were actually getting it. So right now we're actually conducting a large trial funded by the American Cancer Society to see whether patient navigation can improve lung cancer screening rates in our patient population of currently and formerly homeless individuals. And our patient navigator really does everything and anything needed to help patients get through the lung cancer screening process and to help their care teams get through this process as well of getting the lung cancer screening CAT scan. And they also help people to access quit smoking resources if they do smoke. Oh my goodness. Okay. Wow. So yet another, but different vulnerable population. So different than the population that Sonia is focusing on. And I imagine a population with different challenges, different routes to accessibility. So I can't wait to hear again, what, what you're finding, the, 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 I guess, access points that you've used and, and maybe the successes and also the, the struggles that you, you've seen with your navigation program. And I'd love to know what, what both of you think about maybe a, a national implementation policy. So this is going to be an awesome conversation. All right. Thank you, Travis. So Elise, let's, let's pivot back to you. So you, you shared with us this huge umbrella program where your goal is really to improve the quality of life for individuals who are um, at risk for cancer. And so share, share a little more about us, about maybe an advance that has happened in your field that you're particularly excited about. I think our, our listeners would really love to hear that. Great. Thank you. Um, there's lots of advances. I'm going to go back to kind of the big picture. I think that with the catalyzation of virtual delivery, I think the advances that we're looking at is how to take behavioral interventions and have more widespread implementation. And Susanna, you were used that I word. So we're trying to figure out how do we take uh, a brief counseling program in which we're able to reach out to people virtually to prior to a healthcare visit or after a healthcare visit. How do we take that and um, work and understand how that can be sustainable, how it can be integrated into all healthcare delivery systems, and importantly, how that can be sustained? So I think the advances are really about taking these effective behavioral interventions to the next step. And I think that a real benefit of the unfortunate pandemic is that so many individuals realize that these behavioral interventions can be delivered virtually so we can access more people. And our challenge right now is to figure out how do we do widespread implementation of this work? 
so, so it sounds like you feel like the the silver or a silver lining of the pandemic was maybe that it sped some of this up in ways that wouldn't have happened otherwise would that is that a fair statement uh absolutely or would have taken longer to to be embraced interesting so i i think it's it's so interesting the things that have happened because of the pandemic that were totally unexpected and for me this has definitely been one where we've seen a, a completely unexpected positive so that's ah so interesting okay so sonia kind of same question so you you shared with us that in your 20 years at Chelsea, you you when you showed up, you realized that there are some immense disparities when you were looking at screening rates for underserved populations, um, and that you were still working to decrease decrease disparities in screening in these um, particularly vulnerable folks and focusing in breast and colorectal and lung cancer. So. Have you have you seen something that's happened that you've been particularly excited about? Is there an advance that you would like to share with us? Oh, definitely. We have eliminated disparities in colorectal cancer at Chelsea, and that continued. And then with the refugee women, uh, we actually uh, just recently published the study looking if the patient navigation has a long-term effect. And we found out that the refugee women had a similar uh, breast cancer screening rates like our Latino and uh, English-speaking women in Chelsea. So yes, it works. Patient navigation is amazing and uh, can achieve equity in care. Wow, well, tell, tell me a little bit more about the first thing that you said. I, I imagine if I were listening to this podcast, I would be saying, well, what do you mean you eliminated disparities in colorectal cancers uh, screening? How, how, did you, how did you do that? Uh, so uh, we, our navigators navigated all the patients that needed colorectal cancer screening and uh, over time, uh, actually it took us two years for Latino patients to be at the same level. So the screening rates were the same as uh, for our white patients. Uh, and then actually at some point they bypassed us. So they actually had better screening rates. But then uh, we looked more in detail and uh, found out that now in Chelsea, the all vulnerable populations had a very good screening, but then in town where the screening rates are high, uh, their patients, their vulnerable patients didn't get the care uh that because they didn't have the navigators so then we uh, uh did another study where we actually implemented uh specifically uh, navigation for patients that needed the most so the patients that were not adherent with the screenings that no showed for the visits so this was like more and that study was uh, where we were actually doing uh, not just uh, uh, one cancer we were doing a breast uh, colorectum and and uh, um, cervical cancer at the time there was no uh, lung cancer but we did the lung cancer with, with uh, american cancer society funding where we worked with our patients from community health centers, so from Revere, Charlestown, 
and Chelsea, and we decreased their disparities and screened most of them. Wow. So, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense, but you had to have the data to show it. But what what you were able to show is that vulnerable patients need navigators. And for our listeners who don't probably think about that term all the time, if I understand what you're sharing with us, a navigator is someone who is going to do exactly that. It's going to be an individual to hold your hand through the process and make sure that you are showing up for appointments and understanding what what you need to do and why you need to do it and answering all your questions and and navigating and guiding you all the way through this this journey. So I think it is an appropriate name for what a navigator does. So what a what a wonderful way to to have shown that this individual is not only necessary, but is accomplishing the goal of the program. Is that is that a reasonable summary of navigation? Definitely. Thank you. All right. Fantastic. So, Travis, similar question. When you you left us with a pretty amazing story sharing that you you started your work with a, a study of a huge patient population of 28,000 homeless individuals where you wanted to understand why they had a, a, a high, so I think you said two times the rate of lung cancer deaths, and you knew that there were basically two interventions. One was smoking cessation and one was screening, and you also used patient navigation as a tool to bring this homeless population in in a trial to see if navigation could increase screening rates. And so I'm interested to see if you could share with us an advance in your field that's maybe related to the study or maybe a continuation um, of the impact. Sure, yes, I think that is um, both an accurate summary of what led uh, to the line of work that we're doing, but also an accurate summary of of patient navigation um, as we're deploying it here. I really think of a patient navigator as being uh, both an educator and a facilitator. So someone who acts in a role to help um, patients to understand the rationale for why cancer screening um, may be useful or may be beneficial to them to help answer their questions about it in a way that perhaps a healthcare provider may not have the time or ability to do. And then to facilitate the process um, you know, from uh, point A to point Z, so to speak, um, when it comes to both um, discussing uh, the screening test with their provider, ordering the test, getting to the test. If you miss uh, the appointment, then rescheduling it. And we see that that's a big, a big issue with our patient population. And then, um, you know, navigating to completion of any further diagnostic testing that may be required. Uh, so that's how I view navigation right now. Uh, how it will play out or how it is playing out in our patient population is um, something that we will see as the trial unfolds. Uh, but I might switch gears for just a minute to maybe reflect more broadly on your question about uh, advances in in my field or my yeah. area of work. And I would say that in my line of work, um, advances probably look a little bit different than and other perhaps more traditional areas of science. And, and so I think in some ways, the major advance has been one of recognition 
And first, I mean that in the sense of just broad recognition that we should be concerned at all with health equity in a highly vulnerable patient population. And not only that, but that legitimate rigorous science can be brought to bear in this endeavor. And then the second is more specific recognition that uh, cancer is a substantial health issue among people experiencing homelessness and housing and housing instability and is worth paying attention to. When many people think of homelessness, they may think of things like TB or HIV or even drug overdose. And certainly all of those health issues are in fact really pressing in our patient population. But as the homeless population ages, uh, we now recognize that cancer, as well as smoking, which causes a lot of cancer in our patients, is a major source of morbidity and mortality in this population. And there now seems to be a real collective desire to get to the bottom of addressing these issues in ways that might not have been the case even just 10 years ago. Mm, Travis, so that's, that's a little bit of a gut punch. I have to say that, well, I mean, it's good that that you consider this to be an advance, but it's a little bit of a gut punch that we had to have it. But I'm so I'm glad. But t- tell me, why do you think it's the case? What what has happened in the last decade that's led to this maybe a little bit of a sea change? Um, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. Yes, well, when you're thinking about the clinical care for a patient population with housing instability or homelessness, often our concerns are turned appropriately toward things that are very immediate, very urgent, very pressing, very much in the moment and in your face. And that has a way often of overshadowing these more insidious health problems like cancer and its risk factors that are often there lurking under the surface, but never quite rise to the top of the list of concerns during any given appointment. And so um, almost out of necessity, we often find ourselves clinically focusing on those really pressing issues. And, and, And for many years, we didn't really have the data to illustrate that there is another set of more insidious, more chronic problems that do come to bear on this population in really uh, negative and impactful ways. And so while that recognition is um, is hard to come to terms with, it's also vital in order to be able to recognize and respond to those health issues in a way that is um, that's thoughtful and that's appropriate. And so, The other thing that's brought this to light is there's been a well-established aging of the homeless population. And as any group of people age, these issues like cancer or heart disease, uh, smoking and its complications become more prevalent. And this is especially the case with people experiencing homelessness. And so it really has been both a blend of having the data to illustrate this is a problem, but also having Uh, these demographic changes in the homeless population that have really brought these problems more to the forefront of our awareness. And if there is a silver lining, that awareness is what fuels 
our um, new interest in addressing these types of health issues that, again, 10 or 20 years ago may not have been on our radar. I, I really appreciate your assessment. And, you know, the other thing that as you were talking, I was thinking about is that for, for all of us, that we have so many other things in our lives that are maybe if if we are housed, we have very different challenges, but things that are stressors that we maybe focus on and don't focus on perhaps these underlying issues that, you know, that we really should be paying attention to, light screenings. And um, so it all comes back to the fact that they were all very much similar. And um, so thank you. I, um, I, I really, that was a lovely assessment of this challenging patient population. Okay, so Elise, I, I, you've really shared some lovely um, challenges that your, your field is trying to solve and, and a, a really interesting advance. I think our listeners would love to, love to know kind of what are you up to? What, what's a goal of what your research is? about right now? I was thinking about this, Suzanne. I mean, I think I have two overarching goals. One is my research and the other is really my mentoring um, to promote the research and and really um, grow the research of others. So within my research, and I have to say, without the funding of the ACS, I would not be doing this research. And I can talk about that a little more later. But my research goal overall um, is to really look at individuals who are undergoing lung cancer screening and increase those rates, particularly among vulnerable individuals, um, relatedly to leverage lung cancer screening and cancer treatment as a way to help um, patients quit, really to promote this message and the treatment that it's never too late to quit and to improve your health and your health outcomes. Um, we want to give you the support to quit and so to develop programs that can help individuals use cancer screening and cancer treatment to protect their health. The next one is really to improve the understanding of health insurance among survivors. I do have an ACS-funded grant right now that involves patient navigation to help patients once they've completed cancer treatment to access and use their health insurance. And when I've given talks about this work, the common thread uh, response is everyone could use this knowledge, all patients, all types of cancer patients, um, all types of medical patients could really benefit from being able to utilize their health insurance better to make better choices, to make sure that they get the needed healthcare to protect their health and get that covered. And then the last is the resiliency work that I talked about is really imparting these resiliency skills for um, patients after their cancer treatment and their partners. So there's a different prongs, um, but the ACS has allowed me to move this work forward. And then on the mentoring piece that I um, started with, I'm really at a phase of, of generativity where I really am committed to mentoring uh, women and, and um, underrepresented minority researchers and really promote cancer disparities research and cancer disparities researchers. You know, Lisa, one of the things that I've noticed in almost every answer you've given is that your research spans the, the journey that a cancer patient would take. Can you, could you share with us what's attracted you to, to trying to follow a, a patient through this journey? It's like you're not trying to just kind of 
be in and out of their lives. It's like you 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 see this as a an intervention that is not one dimensional, but it's multifaceted. And maybe maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way, but but you see this as a, a as a a. a I see this rather as such a challenging area, and I think you do as well. And you see, you see a need for mul- multiple intervention points. Is that a correct assessment? That's very correct, and I think, and we see a need to to integrate those multiple intervention docking points into all all stages of of cancer treatment, be it prevention, during treatment, and post treatment. And Susanna, what you've picked up on also is that um, the strategies that we use to raise awareness, to intervene with folks, are really to counter barriers that patients struggle with prior to getting cancer. It's lack of access to behavioral treatment, whether it's tobacco treatment or psychosocial treatment, and that precedes a cancer diagnosis. Those are are barriers that make individuals susceptible to getting cancer. And so the thread that we weave throughout the cancer continuum is that these challenges start way before cancer treatment and we should continue to support patients through and they continue far yeah. post cancer treatment. Yeah, they aren't going away. You're exactly right. Oh, I love it. Sonia, I want to ask you the same question. You've you've shared with us some really fantastic challenges that your area of research is trying to solve and some uh, really impressive advances around eliminating disparities. So what's your goal right now? What are you particularly excited about? I think our listeners would love to hear that. So uh, now I uh, actually, after screening the patients, I realized that the patient navigation is might be and is very important during the cancer treatment. So I have a a large study, four-year-long study of uh, patient navigation during treatment. And uh, we are navigating uh, cancer patients that are newly diagnosed with cancer, and they are from our community health centers. So again, vulnerable population that really needs help. And uh, I'm proud to say that the preliminary data showed that the no-show rate to the treatment uh, visits has significantly declined. It's 3.1% compared to 17% when I started doing this work many years ago. Uh, So, and this 3.1% was also during the COVID pandemic. So our navigators were navigating patients all the time. And there was a lot of virtual navigation. Uh, So we are actually looking into this, uh, that uh, using more of a virtual care uh, might be helpful uh, and maybe as helpful as in person for certain cases. So this is something that we are exploring. Also, uh, as I was working with the patients uh, that are in treatment, I realized uh, many of them, fortunately, uh, have uh, done all the treatment and were cured, and they are survivors. So the next step in my career and what I would like to do is really working uh, with the survivors and uh, Uh, working on doing cancer screening in survivors because the studies have shown that 
cancer survivors have a significantly higher risk of dying of a different cancer. So, um, so with uh, Elise Help, who is also somewhat my mentor, uh, we uh, wrote a proposal about that, how we could uh, actually with patient navigation and maybe virtual care screen cancer survivors for all four cancers that they need screening for. So Sonia, I, I want to circle back to something you said, which I think our listeners, I just want to make sure that they understood. You said that, well, first of all, you're now focusing on working with patients who you've managed to get in and navigate them into treatment and that you have significantly reduced what you called a no-show rate. And for our listeners, a no-show rate means exactly that, that they just didn't show up for an appointment, for a screening. And so that is incredible that during COVID, you had a significant impact on a no-show rate because hospitals became, unfortunately, during COVID to some people scary places because they were places where not only were cancer patients going for treatment and individuals needing to go for cancer screenings, but they certainly were places where we were treating lots and lots of COVID patients. So I think that's an incredible statistic. Um, congratulations. I That's impressive. And um, so good luck with all of this. I think that's really exciting. All right, so Travis, we'll ask you the same thing. You, We left you off with a great conversation about an advance where you shared with me a recognition that we should be concerned with health equity in this vulnerable population and how this itself was an advance and really worth paying attention to and how our thoughts around homelessness and their health care has, has really changed. So I'd really like to know what's the goal of your research now? What are you particularly excited about? Yeah, thank you for that question. I direct the Homelessness, Housing and Health Lab in the Division of General Internal Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. And our work is very broadly focused on improving health outcomes for people experiencing homelessness and housing instability. Uh, this work has run the gamut from observational to interventional across a range of health conditions, but with particular focus on addressing the burden and consequences of substance use disorders, including tobacco use in this population. And the vast majority of my work um, is and has been done in partnership with Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, where I'm a primary care provider and the director of research. And I do this work because I guess I've always been passionate about social justice. And I came to learn fairly early in my medical training that people experiencing homelessness have among the worst health outcomes of any group in the US. And we've also learned through research over the past decade or so that housing is a necessary ingredient to improving the health of this population. But it in and of itself may not be enough. And we've come to believe that there are probably things that health systems can do to advance health equity goals in this population as well. And so that's where our work is centered in the healthcare domain. 
So in addition to the patient navigation trial that I mentioned earlier on, uh, we're about to launch, in fact, we're launching tomorrow, a large uh, study of a smoking cessation intervention for people experiencing homelessness at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. That trial will span several years. And we're also about to start up a line of work that's going to take the lessons that we've learned in cancer screening and cancer screening navigation, as well as treating smoking in this population, and then apply that to uh, treatment and treatment outcomes for uh, people experiencing homelessness with opioid use disorder. And so that's an exciting new line of work that we're going to be embarking on here in the coming years as well. Wow. Well, congratulations and good luck. This is such an area of tremendous need, and I just ugh, I can't think of a better better person or better group of people who are ready to do this. So I guess one thing I'd really like to ask all of you, but maybe maybe I'll start with you, Sonia. This this stream that I've heard throughout these conversations is how interwoven and interrelated everything that each of you are doing is but you yet you all have your own of course individual projects one if i were a listener to this podcast one thing i would want to understand is you know kind of how does it all work is there something about the environment at mass general and harvard medical school that helps you and maybe that contributes to your ability to do your work and to conduct patient-centered research. So um, maybe Sonia, we'll start with you and then I'll, I'll ask Elise and Travis to maybe uh, if you have something to add. Thank you for this question. Uh, Mesh General has been really uh, so important uh, for this work. Uh, I have to say that Peter Slavin, who is uh, who, uh, our director of Mesh General, has given actually uh, um, a so-called Clinical Innovation Award uh, that I applied to. So this was my first ever grant of, and it was given from Mesh General to decrease, eliminate disparities in colorectal cancer screening. So uh, all of it started there. And so without it, I would never be here and talk to you. Uh, so I'm really grateful and uh, their support over time, also the Cancer Center from uh, uh, Mesh General has been really supportive uh, uh, to me and also to the navigation. Uh, so there's no no words how I can thank them for all of this. How, how about you, Elise? Are there are there ways? I mean, do you guys get together and talk about what you're doing? Do you build projects together and? Uh, are there things that happen at Mass General that help you to accomplish kind of your goals together? I think Mass General is so unusual in that it's a general hospital and there are expertise in primary care and in, um, in the cancer center and we really work hand in hand. And I think for this American Cancer Society related work, we couldn't do it unless we had that kind of collaborative relationship. And I think that's what makes Mass General such a special place. Nice. And and before Travis, I, before we ask you, I, I want to also ask you, Elise, you mentioned earlier that you have a special place in your heart for mentoring and that you have 
entered a part of your career where you're able to mentor women and underrepresented minorities. That, that certainly dovetails with your research. Is that an area where Mass Journal has been supportive? Um, absolutely. Um, I was fortunate to just be promoted to full professor a couple months ago, and the crux of my promotion lecture was talking about how critical it is to not have a clock. A lot of places have a promotion clock, and so there's a certain time in which you need to go through the different phases of promotion, and okay. Master doesn't believe in that or doesn't, doesn't have that, and that allows those of us who have other responsibilities, be it children or caretaking for elderly or or uh, family-related issues or just life-related issues to work hard, but not to have to do it within a kind of artificially um, compressed time period. And so for that, I think Mass Channel has set us up for success. Nice. So it probably makes you feel like you can encourage other women to enter this field and, and be, um, be real in that assessment of, of what this life's work would look like. Absolutely. The, my quick phrase, it's, it's a marathon. Um, it's not a sprint. And, and, and you train for a marathon and you'll use those skills long term. Absolutely. All right, Travis, how's it been for you at Mass General? How do you, how do you manage to interweave what you do with all these other wonderful people? Well, it's been an interesting experience and I recognize that I am actually really in many ways riding on the shoulders of many people who came before. Um, when Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program was founded back in 1985, MGH was one of its original hospital partners and has been since that time a clinical partner in the care of people experiencing homelessness. What had been missing though for a good chunk of that partnership was a research component to that relationship. And when I came in to start my general medicine fellowship in 2008 and then joined faculty in 2010, I came in wanting to figure out how to make a research relationship like that work without really having any knowledge or skills to do so. And I would just credit both the fellowship director who took a risk in having me in to do this, to try this, my mentors uh, from those very early days, and then ultimately the division chief and the division of general internal medicine who hired me to stay on faculty to build this relationship without even really a clear cut pathway to fund the work because everyone recognized that it was non-traditional but everyone believed that it was important to do and there was a kind of institutional belief in its importance and i'm really really grateful for that that mgh and the people working at mgh at the time and still to this day um, believe on some level um, on many levels in fact that this is work that is important to get right and not just the clinical work, but to bring a scholarly academic research component to inform that clinical work is worth doing. And I'm really, really grateful because without that, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in today. Thanks, Travis. Just have a couple more questions and I'm going to let you all get back to the 
really important work that you do. There, there has been a thread through this entire conversation where each of you has mentioned the American Cancer Society. And for our listeners, I, I just want to remind you all that each of these wonderful people was funded by the American Cancer Society at some point in their careers. Um, it, it's for some of you that's current, and for some of some of you that was in the past. And we are really grateful for the work that each of you are are doing. And we believed in you, and we're so excited uh, for for the contributions that you have made and continue to make to um, cancer research and to the cancer community. So I think one thing that our listeners would love to hear is, uh, is there a way that the American Cancer Society has impacted you, your area of cancer research? Um, Elise, we'll start with you. Sure, I feel like every question you ask, I have to signpost because there are many, so so many points I'd I'd love to impart, but the ACS got me started. Um, I received a career development award um, a mentored research scholar grant uh, for five years to add a component to a national NCI study looking at um, the effects of lung cancer screening on patients. And then after um, I received that grant, I was asked to be a part of and went to chair the ACS's National um, Psychosocial and Behavioral Research Committee. And chairing that committee helped me in so many ways in terms of learning research and, and meeting national collaborators. It changed my life. Um, and then the last thing is that over the past almost decade, we have gotten an institutional research grant at the MGH Cancer Center and been able to fund four to five junior faculty pilot projects um, over the past up to 10 years that have really made a difference for researchers in the field. Thank you, Elise. Um, Sonia, I'll ask you the same question. So American Cancer Society has uh, made uh, a major impact on, in my research. Um, I got the um, so-called Career Development Award for primary care physicians that American Cancer Society had. I was not eligible for the NIH one because I was too long. I was a physician and I worked. It was a long time since I graduated. Uh, so they gave me the award and I was able to do the lung cancer screening patient navigation. And this was at the start of uh, uh, lung cancer screenings. And so we showed that we can screen those vulnerable patients thanks to uh, this award. And uh, it goes on and uh, now uh, my colleague Travis is working also with patient navigation in cancer screening. And uh, I'm hoping to do also that in our survivors, cancer survivors. So uh, American Cancer Society has uh, helped me uh, with this uh, career work, not only to do the study, but also to learn uh, more about the research about I was able to go to school and get MPH thanks to them. So I learned about the statistics and epidemiology so I can understand what the statisticians says. So thank you, American Cancer Society. This was so helpful. Thank you, Sonia. All right, Travis, last for you. Um, how has the American Cancer Society funding impacted you? 
Yes, the American Cancer Society provided or has provided funding to me during very um, vulnerable times in my research career. So after I joined faculty, but before I got an NIH Career Development Award, I received one of those institutional ACS awards that Elise mentioned earlier that enabled me to do the cancer epidemiology study that I mentioned earlier showing really dramatically high rates of lung cancer in addition to other cancers in our uh, homeless experienced patient population. And that laid the groundwork for a lot of subsequent work, including our ongoing pragmatic trial of patient navigation to promote lung cancer screening at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. That award, um, that study that's ongoing now, that award was the first award that I received coming out of my career development award, the so-called transition to becoming an independent scientist, meaning that I'm out on my own doing this, doing this myself, coming up with my own ideas and executing it as the principal investigator. The ACS funded that study during that very vulnerable transition to independence. And so I'm very grateful for the support during those transitional moments in my career. So, we're going to close now. Um, I'd like to ask each of you, would you like to share a message for our listeners who are cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers? Um, Travis, I'll ask you first. I have two parts to this uh, question, and I'm going to, uh, to try to be succinct about both. First, when we talk about the work that we do for people experiencing homelessness, sometimes the question comes up, why should we be concerned with this relatively small subset of the population whose lives are in many ways perhaps much different from our own? And I would say in response to that, that one thing we've come to see time and again in this population is that they really are a bellwether for what's going on in the general population. So whether we're talking about HIV, opioids, COVID, cancer, you name it, people experiencing homelessness unfortunately show us the emerging health trends before they become apparent in the general population. And in addition, their experiences with our healthcare system highlight problems that are really there all along. And they affect everyone to some extent, but they are just really exaggerated in this patient population. And so I've come to strongly believe that in studying and improving the health and healthcare experiences of this population, everyone benefits because there are applicable findings across a range of groups. And as we've recently seen in this COVID pandemic, our collective health is more connected than we might think. The second point I'll mention is that over 14 years of uh, being a doctor and a researcher, I just wanna mention that I firmly believe that patients are the experts. And we as doctors and researchers are the ones learning from your experience. Your voice, your experiences matter, and I'm just really, really grateful to be able to learn from them. Oh, thank you, Travis, that was lovely. Um, Elise, I'd love to ask you the same question. Do you have a message you'd like to share with our listeners who are having a cancer experience? Yeah, I wanted to um, echo, thank you, what Travis said in terms of you're all the experts. And so we are so appreciative of opportunities to partner with you and hear about your experiences. And so if you have opportunities to be on a, an advocate or be on an advisory board, we really couldn't do this work without you all. Um, the last thing is, as I'll put on my psychologist clinician hat, is that 
it is so important to take this time and experience of having cancer and having had cancer to to reevaluate and to think about the potential benefits in your life that you've gained. And cancer is such an incredibly difficult journey for the patients and their families. But I'd encourage you to really think about how has cancer um, made you stronger and how can you help us help others to do so? So thank you. Oh, thank you, Elise. I really appreciate you sharing that. All right, Sonia, we'll leave you for the last message. Is there um, a communication you'd like to share with our cancer families? So my current study is uh, really with the patients who have cancer. So I have learned a lot through that study. Uh, before, I worked only on cancer screening uh, to prevent cancer, but now I am with you. I am with the cancer patients, and it's very different. I learned so much from you. And then I learned, yes, you can, you can fight the cancer and you can win. But after that, you also need to take care of yourself. You need to get screening. And that's what I want to help you, help to everyone to get regular screening so you don't get another cancer and die from that. That's my message to you. And I know you can do it. And American Cancer Society can help and they are helping all the time. Oh, thank you, Sonia. What a great message. All right. Thank you all. You've just been lovely. Thank you for the work you do. We're so excited to have you as a part of the ACS and um, we wish you the best of luck. So I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.